Well, if you turn with me now in your Bibles, as we turn to the preaching of God's Word, we'll be in Judges chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Before we begin the reading and preaching of God's Word, I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing and guidance for the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that You would bless the preaching of Your Word, this means of Your grace to us. Or would You open our eyes to see wondrous things out of Your law? Would You open our hearts to receive Your grace and Your mercy and transform them to be obedient children to you who seek to delight in doing your will because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray your blessing on us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life. In my hand, and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim. You Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord to us this morning. There's a few things that may be a little bit different for us if we're stepping into this text for the first time. The men of Ephraim are a neighboring tribe in Israel on the western shores of the River Jordan. And Gilead is a uh, smaller group of people that are on the eastern side of the Jordan, one side and the other. And here they are going to battle against each other. I'll explain what all this means in just a few moments, but that's what's going on here. The Ammonites are a group of people that were outside of Israel that were fighting and raiding in Israel, and Jephthah, this judge, had come against them and defeated them in battle. Now, as we turn to our text this morning, there's a few questions I want to ask to help us think about what's going on here and how this relates to our own lives and why this text is important for us. And it's about righteousness and self-righteousness. 
The question I want to ask is, why do we want righteousness? Why do we want it? Well, I think if we begin to think about righteousness as if it's like currency, it's like money. In the book of Romans, it likens it to wages that we earn or that we get paid for working. It shows that what we do has value or merit. It's a way to show that what we do indeed has value, that it's important, that it's actually glorious, ultimately. And there's a lot of different ways we can define righteousness. We can define it the way that God defines it in His Scriptures, namely in the Ten Commandments, this is what righteousness looks like. Or we can define it ourselves in the way that we think what is righteous and not doing what is unrighteous, or we can let the world around us dictate to us what they think is righteousness. And these might be very contradictory definitions of righteousness at times. And I think this is one of the reasons why money itself is such an idol for people, because it's a way to tangibly assess value and glory. It's a way that says, I have worked and I have earned. I have done good, and therefore I have been paid for it. And money is the tangible way that we can assess whether somebody has done good work. And that's why people want more and more of it. It is a way to display to the world that you are a good person. You've done your job. And the more money you have, the more righteous and the more of a good person you at least appear to the world. So we understand why we want righteousness, why we want to do good things. So what do we do when we're righteous? Well, Proverbs 28, verse 1, we'll read this in a couple weeks in our morning services, says this, the wicked flees when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We have to be careful how we understand Proverbs, that Sometimes what Proverbs is saying is not always instructing us of what is the best thing, too. There is a good thing about righteousness. When we're righteous, it makes us bold. But there is also a way that when we're self-righteous, we become bold. We run into things when we think we have righteousness, when we don't, and we shouldn't. But righteousness gives us boldness and confidence. It gives us confidence that what we're doing is right. No matter what anyone else says to us or says to us about it, righteousness gives us strength to go forward in the face of evil. But when we have a false estimation of our righteousness, also known as self-righteousness, we'll turn to doing evil. It's why the rich people so often oppress the poor. Their money convinces them that whatever they're doing is right, no matter what it costs others. It's why you and I speak poorly to others and about others. Because we believe our cause, our reasons are righteous. It doesn't matter what I say about this person because I'm right. I can say whatever I want about them. I am justified in my assessment of this person. I'm righteous. They're clearly evil and it needs to be exposed. So then what happens when our righteousness is challenged, or at least our perceived righteousness, the way we perceive our own righteousness? What happens when somebody challenges that? When we believe we have a righteousness 
or a righteous cause, as our sermon title says, what do we do? How do we respond in that moment? And the great danger that we have is if we are self-righteous and how we respond when we are challenged about our own perception of our own righteousness. There's two ways I'd like to break our text up today. The first way is to look at the self-interested glory seekers. There's a bunch of hyphenated words in good Kleinian fashion, if you know who Meredith Klein is. He likes to use a lot of hyphens in his words. Self-interested glory seekers. And secondly, other interested glory givers. And our first point this morning as we dive into our text, I would like us to see the three problems or three difficulties or even terrible things that come as a result of self-righteousness. It's divisive, it's deceptive, and ultimately it's devastating. This is the first and last time I will probably ever use alliteration in a sermon, so write those down. But it's divisive, deceptive, and devastating. So self-righteousness. Let's look at our text. Ephraim is a neighboring tribe of Israel on the other side of the Jordan, 30, 40 miles away. Think of it somewhat like Milwaukee and Madison, two separate cities, one on the east and one on the west. And two months after Jephthah sacrifices his own daughter in a tragic, terrible decision and choice on his part, two months after his victory over the Ammonites, then this neighboring tribe takes up arms against him. The war is over, but now his own kinsmen come to battle against him. And this is an echo of a similar episode a few chapters earlier with another judge, Gideon. If you remember, after Gideon had fought against Moab and was trying to defeat this foreign, this foreign nation, he called the Ephraimites to join him in his battle. Come down, fight against the, the, the kings of Moab with me. And the Ephraimites came down. But after they fought, the Ephraimites killed the two kings of Moab. And then they go and complain to Gideon and say, why didn't you call us earlier? What were you doing? And Gideon pacified them, appealing to their pride. They were mad because they were called late to the battle. But here, there's no battle going on. At least in their perspective, they were never called at all. They didn't show up to the battle. In their estimation, Jephthah didn't do his job. Why are they so mad? Why are the Ephraimites now raised up in arms, ready to fight against Gilead and Jephthah? Well, ultimately, it's because the Ephraimites feel entitled. It's another form of self-righteousness. Ultimately, they are saying to Jephthah, what you have, your land, belongs to me, and you are not the one who gets to decide what happens. I have a right to it. I have a just cause. I am righteous in coming after you, telling you that you screwed up royally, and now you have to pay for your error. Because of who I am, because of what I've done, because I belong here, and I'm going to make sure you don't forget it. And this is what the Ephraimites are threatening Jephthah. You don't forget us. And then they level this awful threat against him. 
we are going to burn your house over you. And if you're here last week, we heard the awful episode of Jephthah sacrificing his own daughter as a burnt offering. And this is probably a high-handed insult against Jephthah, somewhat deserved. But it's what's called harem warfare. And this is an astonishing turn in the land of Israel at this time. No longer is Israel turning and executing harem warfare against their enemies in the land of Israel. They're now executing harem, threatening harem warfare against their own kinsmen. Now Israel is turning one against another. I'm going to burn you down in your house. Now what is Jephthah's response here that we see? It's virtually the same question that he asked the Ammonites, the foreign country near them who was fighting against Israel. Virtually the same question. What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? (coughs) He's basically comparing the Ephraimites with the Ammonites. He's treating them just like they're a foreign, ungodly nation. <clears throat> and he responds to his kinsmen's wickedness, their wicked rising up against him with his own self-righteousness. Why do you come up against me and my land? <clears throat> Excuse me, this is my uh, uh, congestion playing tricks on me right now. And what we begin to see here is the fracture happening in Israel because of their own perceived self-righteousness. Jephthah and Ephraim, convinced of their own righteous cause, are turning one against the other. But this isn't the only thing that happens with self-righteousness. It's deceptive. Here's the thing about Jephthah. He's right. He's right. And Ephraim is wrong. Jephthah's cause is right. What are you doing coming against me and my people? And he tells them, the problem that I had with Ammon, the Ammonites, was with me and them. This had nothing to do with you. I'm on the eastern side of of the Jordan River. The Ammonites are further east from us. They're fighting against us. They weren't coming over to you too often. This has to do with me and Ammon. Mind your own business is basically what he's telling them. And Jephthah says, acknowledges that the Lord gave him the victory over the Ammonites. But we see here, in the end, it's all about Jephthah. The Lord's victory was, in Jephthah's eyes, to exalt himself. He uses the first person pronoun for you non-English majors like myself. That's I, me, and my. He uses it 13 times in this passage in three short verses. Thirteen times he refers to himself. This is all about Jephthah. I took my life in my hand. All he can see is his own world. And Jephthah confuses the Lord's gift of victory as his own. I risked myself. I went out. I did all this. And you're going to come against me? That's how he ends this. Why have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Jephthah's continual problem is he's 
continually turned in on himself. He thinks, like many of us, that our accomplishments in life are our own doing. He thinks his victory in the battle, yes, he attributes it to the Lord, but it's ultimately his work, even if it's given to him by God. And this contradicts what Scripture teaches us, that everything good that we accomplish in this life is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Jephthah doesn't think he received this ultimately. And he's eminently protective of his own self. But here's the thing. Winning the battle was evidence for Jephthah that he was on the right side. It was proof for him that not only was he right, he's fighting the Lord's battle, but this made him righteous. And so whatever he does from that point on is is good. It's righteous. You can't come against me. And Jephthah's great mistake is that he thought that now he was the righteous one and that made anything that he did justified. His response was good. And whatever response he issued would be right. And that whatever he did would be righteous. And we see this immediately after of what happens. Jephthah issues his interrogation back And does he wait for a response from them, like he did with the king of Ammon? No. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim. Our hearts can easily deceive themselves because we're right. Even if we're right, we will turn even the good things that the Lord accomplishes through us and use them for evil ends. And we tend to think, often, our responses are justified because I'm obviously right. So I can respond to a person, I can say whatever I want, I can do whatever I want because they're clearly in the wrong. And we see the devastating effects that self-righteousness is devastating. See, it not only destroys us, we become an evil person carrying out evil acts on the basis of our supposed righteous cause, but it also destroys others. Anyone who stands in our path. See, all the judges that came before Jephthah, when their deaths are recorded, they end this way. So-and-so died, And the land had rest for 40 years, 80 years. Othniel, 40 years. Ehud, 80 years. Deborah and Barak, 40 years. Gideon, 40 years. Now we finally arrive at Jephthah. There is no account here of the land getting rest. Jephthah does not bring any rest to the land. Yes, he judges. Yes, he defeats the Ammonites. But is there any rest for the people of Israel? No, instead, he fosters unrest for the people of God. He embarrasses his kinsmen. That's what his, this shibboleth test is meant to do. It's meant to embarrass them and shame them. 
You can't even pronounce this word right. And then he slaughters them, one by one, of all the men who remain who are trying to get away and flee the battle. It's a devastating scene of 42,000 men. He almost completely decimates their army. And again, the story here mirrors the story of Ehud. Remember last week, there are many parallels in the story of Jephthah to the story of Ehud, the second judge in the book of Judges. At the end of Ehud's judging of the king, as he's fleeing back across the Jordan, he comes to the fords of Jordan. It's there at the fords of Jordan that he slays all the foreign kings and their armies. At the fords of Jordan there, this, this battle is accomplished. I'll just read it for you so you can hear it in its own words. Where is it? Verse 28. And he said to them, the Ephraimites... Follow me after me, and the Lord will give your, has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. But here... Again, at the fords of Jordan, it is not the Moabites, a foreign nation persecuting Israel, that gets slayed. And it is not 10,000 men, but 42,000. Here at the fords of Jordan, the Israelites are now turning and fighting against each other. Why do we turn against one another? Why do the Israelites turn against each other when their righteousness is threatened? Now, the obvious and easy answer is because we're sinners. In our sin, we want nothing less to be exposed as wrong before the world. So we will do everything in our power to protect that perception that we're righteous. We'll do everything in our power to to protect the perception at all costs, regardless of whether we are or not. Jephthah's fundamental problem in the end becomes his own view of himself. I, me, my. Jephthah is looking out for himself. He is an illustration of the words of Martin Luther. The carnal nature of man violently rebels, for it greatly delights in punishments, in boasting of its own righteousness, and in its neighbor's shame and embarrassment at his unrighteousness. Therefore, it pleads its own case, and it rejoices that this is better than its neighbor's, but it opposes the case of its neighbor and wants his neighbor's case to appear mean and shabby. What we must learn that Jephthah has forgotten, and the men of Ephraim have forgotten, is that our righteousness does not come from ourselves. And even when it is given to us as a gift, it is still alien to us. It is still somebody else's righteousness. 
What Jephthah needed to see and what you and I need to see is where our righteousness comes from and who it belongs to. That instead of a self-interested glory taker, we need a other-interested glory giver. What Israel needed to learn through Jephthah as they read this account was their desperate need for a truly righteous judge. They need a righteous Savior, a truly righteous Savior, one who is righteous in himself, but righteous in the right way, who understands what righteousness is, who understands what a just response is to his own kinsmen. Judges, judges like Jephthah, no matter how great their political victories are, are wholly unsuitable to be king. And we need a truly righteous king, one who is not only righteous for himself, but righteous for others. And that is who Jesus Christ is, a truly righteous king for you and I. So why is it so essential to us understand our source of righteousness? It does two things for us. First, it frees us from something. We know that we have full and complete righteousness given to us freely by Jesus Christ. It frees us from the shackles of having to establish our own righteousness, of having to seek our own glory. The Ephraimites seeking their own glory. Why didn't you include us? Jephthah, you have no business here. This is my glory. I, me, my. It frees us from protectiveness, from vindictiveness, and the defensiveness that self-righteousness breeds. And it frees us from trying to prove ourselves to everyone or defend ourselves. It frees us from all these things. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to protect myself because I'm already righteous. You can point to me in things that I have errors in and that I'm wrong. And that is a benefit to me. It gives me strength because I know that I have a righteousness that is outside of myself, secure in someone else. But it's not only what it frees us from, it's what it frees us for. It frees us to love. It frees us to love our neighbors. When we see Jesus Christ as our righteousness, it frees us to love everyone around us. It frees us also to give of ourselves, to love others and to give of ourselves because we know that we have everything we need in Jesus Christ, that God has given us himself in his son. I don't need to prove myself to others. I have everything I need. Therefore, I can give. What can you take away from me? We don't have to portray ourselves as rich, as wealthy, as all put together. We don't have to portray ourselves as perfect people. Now, we have a calling to be perfect, to follow the Lord and to obey him. But we don't have to maintain appearances with people 
for the sake of maintaining appearances. Instead, we can give away our belongings, our possessions, our time, and our resources. But the last thing that it does, and we see this as the complete opposite of this entire episode, is it frees us to suffer. It frees us to suffer. Because when we realize that no one in this world can take from us what we have in Jesus Christ. No one can take it from us. And not only can they not take it from us, whatever they do take from us in this life, God has promised in the New Testament that he will give it back tenfold. We can say, yes, you come against me. I have a righteous cause. I can defend myself. And there are times when that's appropriate. But ultimately, I don't need to defend myself. In fact, I can suffer for righteousness' sake. I can have this world come against me. Even my own kinsmen, my own brothers, maligning me, accusing me, because I know at the end of the day, I stand righteous before the Lord. That's what Israel needed to see in this episode with Judges. And that's what you and I need to see in this episode, is that we have a truly righteous judge. We have a truly righteous Savior who has given us his righteousness as a free gift, if only we believe in him. So brothers and sisters, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he is your righteousness a righteousness that cannot be taken away from you, that nobody can accuse and say it's false because it is the Son of God's righteousness for you. Believe in it and trust in it. And as you do learn to love, to give yourself away, and to suffer for righteousness' sake. Let's pray. Our Father, we do need the help of your Holy Spirit to do all of these things. It is only he alone who can convince us in our hearts that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And so we pray you would give us faith. And what faith we do have, we pray you would strengthen it, that we would not see our own righteousness, but Christ alone. And Lord, we do pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit to love and to give of ourselves that he would transform us to people who love even our enemies and to show them the love of Christ. We ask that you would do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.